episode is paying attention to children's mental health. At this time, 99% of children around the world are affected by some form of lockdown restrictions. Learning, their development, socializing, family gatherings, almost every pillar of childhood is affected. Crisis, a risk, pandemic, saving lives, distancing, the language of this new reality is filled with anxiety and fear. As the experts warn of a looming mental health crisis, especially amongst the young, we dive into this enormously important topic to open up the conversation, educate ourselves and our kids on mental health and navigate times of uncertainty. Joining me today are two wonderful mums. Hello, my name's Nepur Manchanda. I live in North London in the UK with my husband and two children. I have a 14-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old son. If I had to describe us, I would say that on the outside, it's quite easy to pass us off as a family living in middle-class comfort with no apparent problems. But last year, I gave up work after 25 years of building my career to focus on supporting my children, both of whom have quite serious mental health difficulties. Oh, hi, I'm Alex Bateman. I'm a, I live in London with my 14-year-old son. I'm a single mother. I'm an artist and freelance writer um, specialising in interiors and I run um, the Glebe House London that's a creative event space and uh, bed and breakfast and uh, well I've been a single mother for eight years and supporting my son through lots of different challenges age eight to 14 things change quite quickly and as you know they grow up fast. Thank you very much well let's um, dive right in into this subject of mental health. I actually didn't realize how vast of a topic it is. It basically covers uh, children's well-being across so many different areas from emotional to developmental, behavioral, social, cognitive. I mean, pretty much everything apart from physical health. Nepore, what aspect of this children's mental health do you find the most important and uh, which did you have to address personally? Um, it's, it's a big question that you're asking. And like you, the more I had to go through this journey, the more I learned and discovered about the many different facets and types of um, problem that our children can face. Um, and I have to say that I don't necessarily think about it in that way, in terms of what's most important to me, which aspect. Um, what's most important to me, as it is to you and to all parents out there, is that my children are first and foremost happy. Um, I want them to have the resilience to help them cope with the world around them. I want them to develop the right skills, particularly as they go through their teenage years, to help them function as mature, emotionally independent um, and intelligent adults. In truth, that feels a long way off for us right now. And I think that's largely because of some of the um, personal challenges that we've had to experience. So um, to give you some insight into what's going on with us, my daughter was diagnosed with anorexia nervosa last November um, when she was 13 and a half. So to describe her a little bit, her way of coping with the stresses and strains of life around her is to internalise them. So if she feels anxious or unhappy, she becomes very withdrawn and uncommunicative. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the height of her illness, she punished herself by stopping eating properly. Um, and she would go to great lengths to disguise what was going on with her. She spent. She used to spend long periods of time in her room so we didn't think anything was wrong at first um we didn't see her for most of the day because she was at school so she would convince us that she was eating at school and that she wasn't hungry she began to wear very baggy clothes she became very 
to begin with, interested in food. She became very interested in nutrition and what we were eating and she wanted to learn how to cook. But later on, I discovered that that interest was really a way of controlling her food intake. She began to secretly exercise. So all of these things that I know now were symptoms of a very serious disease. At the time, I didn't perhaps recognise them properly enough. Um, And Mm. she became quite skeletal. So if I looked at her all I could see was skin and bones but I also know that when she looked in the mirror she saw something fat and ugly looking back at her Mm. so that taught me that anorexia is very much a disease of the mind and of the body in my son's case it's almost sort of the the polar opposite and the fact of the matter is we don't actually really know what to call the bundle of symptoms that he experiences and I'm sure that's a very common challenge when trying to assess the mental health of your children. Um, My husband and I, we believe that our son has neurodevelopmental difficulties. Um, That's to say that we think he's way behind the benchmark for developing certain emotional skills, um, such as the ability to control his emotions, social skills. And mostly we see that impact in how he behaves. We suspect he has a mildish form of ADHD, but that's based on our sort of amateurish Google-based research, uh, which also suggests there are traits of something called oppositional defiance disorder, and there may also be some light traits of autism, or it could be something else entirely. So in the absence of a diagnosis, we don't actually have a name for it. Mm. But what we do know is what we see. We see that he's often unhappy, that he experiences high levels of anxiety, that he really struggles to control his emotions, which often leads to outbursts. Um, He's forgetful. um, He finds concentrating really difficult, and he's pretty disorganised as well. So when you add all of that up together, Mm. (laughs) it gives a picture, I think, of some of the um, challenges that we go through at home. Sense kind of chills down my spine. I think especially about um, um, anorexia. And how do you really know when something is going wrong? It's it's slightly embarrassing to answer that because in many ways I'm no expert. And the reason I say that is because I don't think we did notice in my daughter's case particularly soon enough. Um, but with the enormous benefit of hindsight, the first thing I would say is to absolutely trust your instincts. And then I think the second thing is once you have an instinct or an inkling that something's wrong, act on it. And the the only way you can really do that is to spend time with your children. And I mean more than spending time sort of asking how school was and if everything's okay and then moving on, but to actually carve out some real space where you can have deep conversations with them about how they're feeling about themselves and the world. Um, so for my daughter, when she started getting ill, I was working full-time in a very demanding job. Um, My husband, he also works full-time in a demanding job. I knew something was up, but if I'm being honest, I didn't spend enough time with her to figure out what. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's also complicated by the fact that my daughter has always been what we would describe as the easy child. She's always been the epitome of maturity and resilience. She's, She's grown up with relatively few challenges up to this point. She seems to integrate well in school. She's really um, good at schoolwork. She has lots of friends. We just didn't pay enough attention to those warning signs, even though my instinct was something is wrong. Mm. And I think that's largely because our lives were complicated enough when we were at home. A lot of our time was trying to keep our son on an even emotional keel. And so if we thought that my daughter was having a bad day, we would just either ignore it or hope the problem would go away or think it was a phase. Um, But it's 
only when I really sat down with her and had a very open heart to heart. It was a real breakthrough moment for us. She poured her heart out to me. She said why she was unable to eat. She talked about how she felt about school, how she felt um, the pressure on herself to keep herself, keep going and do as well as she always did, how she felt about her body image. It was only when she was able to talk to me about what was going on with her that I felt I had her permission to take her to the doctor and really get some professional help. And I'm absolutely convinced that she has recovered to the point, she's not fully recovered, but she has made a good recovery so far. And I'm convinced that's because we had that talk and she wanted to get better. I think talking to our kids, it's um, incredibly um, important and carving out that space. Alex, I want to talk about talking to our kids and kind of spotting what is you know, going wrong with them, um, especially around anxiety or these kind of fears that they have, whether uh, you know, it's about school or some other uh, pressures. How do you spot um, those like anxiety in your child um, and how do you help them? Yeah, I was thinking back to the past, well, 14 years, he's now 14, and it occurred to me how, how simple things were when he was four, five, six. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, yeah. he, he hasn't got a diagnosed mental illness and he can be a very chirpy lad, but I'm fascinated by the psychology of other people's minds because it wasn't till my late 40s that I realised other people thought so differently than me. So I have always kept an eye on on his thinking and when he was four and five he wore his heart on his sleeve so you would know what he was anxious about. He was absolutely, you know, they're absolutely verbal, they're mummy, mummy, I'm scared of that toy, I'm scared of that TV show, I'm worried about grandma, I'm worried about etc. And then as they grow up, that's the problem for us has been uh, they obviously close down more and more. And once they get to be a teen, which my son is, it takes a lot more detective work to work out um, what might be wrong because some teens are different, but some teenage boys don't speak openly about how they feel. (laughs) Some grown men don't. Um, So when he was a kid, it was great. He would verbalise and I could talk him through it. Um, The challenge has been adapting my techniques to a kid that's getting to be 11, 12, 13, 14. Um, Ways of spotting it are, I mean, it's probably when they're a child, obvious to anyone, but as they get older, are they... Are they still biting their nails? Are they reluctant to meet up with friends? Are they reluctant to go out? Um, Are they getting angry? Because anger, I found in most cases, adult and child stems from anxiety and fear. Um, And uh, one of the most important things I've done is to make sure I'm a calm presence and um, to make sure that I am not being triggered by his behaviours, so if he's worried, I am absolutely calm and reassuring. If he's angry, I mean, I'm not saying this always works because Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm not perfect, but if he's angry, then I am calm. Um, And that's been the most important thing for keeping him on an even keel um, throughout his childhood. But anxiety, yeah, anxiety can be masked and uh, you may think your kid is being naughty, defiant, angry, but actually he's probably scared about something that he's not going to tell you if he's a teen. And that is where the difficulties arise. 
trying to be a detective? Yeah, that was actually my um, follow-on question. It's easy, especially with teens, to assume... Um, I mean, they push every button <laughs> we have uh, oh, yeah. in that. I don't know if, if you find it too, but it, it's like a daily emotional and physical kind of a, a, a boxing ring. But it's really easy to slip into kind of push, punishing naughty behavior versus just really uh, taking a step back and seeing a bigger picture. You know, how, how do you distinguish bad behavior from uh, mental health issues or anxiety and instead offer help? Um, well, it, it might not be a popular view, but I, I consider all bad behaviour to have the roots in anxiety or mental health issues, even when you're looking at guys in prison. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, so demonstrating empathy towards our kids when they are behaving badly, it's not a popular view amongst, you know, my brother and my relatives. But if my kid sprints off and is having a meltdown, then I'm not going to punish him. I'm not going to drag him back to the car. I'm not going to yell at him. I'm going to sit down with him and show empathy and, mm -hmm. and find out what it is that's making him feel like the fight. Well, it's that fight or flight mechanism, isn't it? If you are anxious, you're either going to lash out or you're going to run away. Um, and the mm -hmm. discipline. I, I actually came across a group called, well, in these last few years when I'm trying to navigate things on my own, and I'm, I, I came across a group called the National Association of Therapeutic Parents. And, oh my God, their books are amazing. And their mm -hmm. techniques basically were um, established for kids who'd gone through foster care or abusive childhoods or some sort of trauma. But actually the techniques work for any kid. And it's about um, showing empathy and building confidence rather than, well, they absolutely don't do punishments. The, the punishments would be a logical conclusion like, oh, you've broken your laptop, therefore you can't do whatever. There's no sort of punishment that doesn't make sense, like you've broken your laptop, therefore you can't go out on Saturday to that party. The only punishment would be the logical one. And it... Mm -hmm. um, and it's basically, well, actually, I think they've got a method called, some guy called Dan Hughes developed the method called PACE, P-A-C-E. And um, it's a technique for dealing with a kid who's anxious. Let me try and remember what P stands for. I'm hoping it's patience, but I've probably got it wrong. Um, playfulness, actually. Huh. It's like <laughs> when they are acting up, instead of going into telling them off in severe shouting mode or whatever mums do. Maybe not severe shouting, but stern. Um, we do shout. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but even, <laughs> even not going into stern mode, but going into playful mode as in, oh, oh, someone's Mr. Grumpy this, that and the other today. Or, uh, you know, being absolutely ridiculous like you're talking to a small child might mm -hmm. get them to relax. So that's the P, playfulness. Acceptance is A, accepting the kid, not not telling him he's a bad, naughty child, accepting, not accepting the behaviour, not accepting aggression or smashing or naughtiness or rudeness, but accepting the kid. C is curiosity. So you verbalise, I wonder why you're feeling so, about, you know, I wonder why you're feeling so moody today. I wonder what it is that triggered you, blah, blah, blah. You know, it can be annoying for the kid, but actually it helps them to recognise their own emotions and, mm -hmm. you know, then maybe regulate their own emotions better if they can identify 
what it is that's making them feel that way because even as adults we might not know how we're why we're behaving in a certain way um mm -hmm. p-a-c-e e is empathy mm -hmm. yeah so everything you do is steeped in empathy even when the kid is being the most obnoxious brat in Nepal, do you um do you agree with that do you also see it um in interaction with your kids Yes, absolutely. I was nodding my head vigorously as you were talking, Alex, because it makes so much sense. It resonates a lot. I'm sure it resonated with you as well, Katya, yes. and, and many other parents as well. I think the one thing I would add, um, I, I'm not what I would describe as a typically calm person. And so and it's taken me a long time to figure out that um, to meet anger with calmness is always the best the best route mm -hmm. um and it's always the one that's going to lead to the best outcome yes but in order to do that the one thing it's really taken me a while to figure out is that you have to be very aware of what's going on in your own mind and body um when confronted with an incident that might make your your anger levels or your anxiety levels rise in addition to your child's and i think that sort of level of self-awareness is one that you have to sort of consciously teach yourself mm -hmm. and practice um in order to be a good parent um i don't mean to sound preachy i'm sorry i realized that sounded a little bit patronizing as i said it and i i really don't mean that but um this this doesn't come easy parenting a teen doesn't come easy and in order to be able to role model good behaviors and always be calm and make sure that you are demonstrating to your child that it is possible to manage your own anxiety and manage your own reactions you have to really know what's going on with you so mm -hmm. if there's an incident and I'm in the middle of cooking dinner and everything feels time sensitive that's a real trigger for me when I'm bound to blow and I have to just go right it doesn't matter let's take all the pans off the hob and let's go and find out what's going on with my son because mm -hmm. I want him to know that he's important to me and to, to practice that I think is the thing that is really helpful mm. I don't know Alex do you agree also that we have to uh, do some soul searching in ourselves oh yeah i mean being calm ourselves is the most crucial thing and um being in our adult self not going into <laughs> trying to be an adult um at all times mm -hmm. when we're dealing with them so if they're doing something that annoys you you can't start feeling like a kid like you want to kick off and you want to you know you've got to be the mature adult it's rather boring but you know this is adulting and um working on yourself so you can identify when you're starting to get that feeling rising in your chest that you are getting annoyed um, and um, recognizing that you can take a deep breath and that it doesn't matter if you don't get out of the house on time or it doesn't really matter if you skip that entire outing that you were going to do um, mm. the main thing that matters is that you and your kid are happy so if it's just rolling around the sofa with the dogs and doing a jigsaw puzzle then you know getting rid of your expectations basically and keeping yourself calm mindfulness <laughs> yeah actually getting rid of expectations for me it probably defines uh, parents and teenagers <laughs> yeah, um, i mean i moved from london to greece and i'm russian so living by the sea is just I don't know, it's like a dream come true, right? For mm. any, anyone who moves from <laughs> Great Britain or, or Moscow. But um, my kids just want to be teenagers. They want to stay at home. So the amount of sea outings that we've uh, skipped <laughs> is, um, mm. yeah. Nupur, once the 
symptoms of mental health um, problems appear in the family? Do, do dynamics change in some way between siblings, between, between the family? How, how do you keep that balance? Yes, our, our family dynamics changed enormously. And as I mentioned, both our children were experiencing mental health difficulties in very different ways. Um, and I feel that they almost exacerbated each other. Um, so if, when my daughter was diagnosed and we sat down with my son and we had uh, sort of one of those serious talks, we said she's seriously ill and she's going to be going to the hospital quite a lot. Um, and so we just have to keep a bit of calm around the house. Um, he was brilliant. He was really fantastic for about a month or so. But then his need for attention and time began to reassert itself. And I would be lying if I said we sometimes didn't feel struggles between them for attention. Um, when at a time when my husband and I were going, what we really need to do is sort of all pull together and realise that everyone needs help and everyone has needs. It's a very big thing to ask of a teenager to have that level of emotional maturity to be able to forget their own very keenly felt and real issues and perhaps put those aside in um, in favour of someone else. So that is one of the challenges that we did face and um, we do face. And the way that we the way that we address that is we we talk, right? So we, we just, the same old rule, try and treat people how you would treat yourself. Some of the cliches that are true, which is why they're cliches about making sure that you always realise someone else might be having a bad day. You don't really know what's going on in their life. Um, we try and teach that and preach that in our family. I think the more interesting dynamic was really was what was going on between me and my husband. Mm. Um, so we we had this very happy and stable and reassuring and safe environment at home. But increasingly, as our children were growing up and finding it difficult to cope with the pressures of the world, our home life stopped being calm and it stopped being reassuring. Um, and when we were coming home, we were tired because we have busy, demanding jobs and our patience and our resilience would be low. Um, and that how that manifested itself was we would just commonly want the other person to deal with the children because we didn't have the energy. Mm. And that's a really good example of us being in our own headspace and thinking about our needs as opposed to being able to take us step outside and go, what does our family need? And what's our job as parents? Which is easy to say, but I'm being very honest. Sometimes you come home and you just need to flop on the sofa and do nothing and get rid of that day and get rid of the problems. Um, and we would often argue with each other about the best way to handle our children. And as you all know, mental health is not like a cut or a graze or even a broken bone where you can put a plaster cast on it and then there's a resolution. It requires constant attention and time and support mm-hmm. um, because so much of it is about developing positive and ways of thinking mm-hmm. as opposed to fixing something that's physically wrong. And so we wouldn't always have the same approach because we'd often feel unsure, unsettled. We would also feel enormous levels of guilt and personal frustration when it felt that we were getting it wrong all the time. And that became quite a sort of dangerous melting pot for us. Um, I think I think what's really happening, and it's, it's happening only sort of recently in these last few months, is it became clear in our case that our children were experiencing um, mental health disorders on a clinical, on a pathological level. Um, and we needed outside help. Um, and I mentioned earlier that I felt we perhaps acted 
not soon enough. But um, when we did act and we did start saying, actually, let's try and get some external support. Let's try and um, deal with this issue as if it were a broken bone um, and get some expert advice and input. Then we actually all found a little bit more of a release or uh, from that sort of pressure cook environment because it also helped us separate some of the issues that we were all feeling but particularly our children it separated the disorder from who they were as people and you mentioned earlier that um, if someone's behaving inappropriately or if they're angry it's it's a behavior that's the problem and not the child Um, and I think that acknowledgement and understanding that we were experiencing problems that had a name and that it was about the behavior but it wasn't about the individual that began to make things feel a lot easier for us. On the back of that, Alex, um, I wanted to ask you about support networks. I mean, you mentioned you are parenting on your own, your son. How, how do you um, keep up, you know, <laughs> this balancing act um, and um, kind of stay fit? And do you have a support network? Yeah, I'm pretty lucky to have a lot of people I can talk to if I need to and people I can call on. And um, I mean, I've, all my family, well... My immediate family are in London, where I am, which is very unusual because, uh, yeah, generally people move to London. But um, my family are all around me. Uh, we did lose my mother a couple of years ago, which is was basically my best support. But I do have great friends, great female friends. The thing about divorcing is you end up with incredibly strong uh, bonds with your female friends. Um, and for my son... It's it's harder for him to have a support network because, well, he has his cousins who he loves. And what I try and find, because I'm a single mum, is, is really excellent male role models um, that I can insert surreptitiously into his life without him noticing. <laughs> like uh, mm-hmm. my friends, my best friend had her kids you know, way, way young. So her son is now 30. And when my son was five or six, seven, we had him move in with us as his sort of manny. And what a lovely young man. And to this day there, I mean, even yesterday they were talking for hours. Um, a lovely, lovely young man who do like, I don't know what you call it, tai chi or jujitsu with him, would talk Marvel comics, talk games. And then if I needed some tutoring for him for English or maths, I'd, I'd vet these guys until I found the loveliest 20-year-old man who was intelligent <laughs> and had empathy and just kind of insert them into the house for an hour every Wednesday and hope it worked its magic. And, um, yeah, it, this, mm-hmm. I mean, all these things I'm talking about, actually, the, the pandemic has made them triply difficult to pull off, obviously, and... Now that he's a teen, things are triply difficult to pull off um, because he's not seeing his friends and uh, I'm not even seeing my friends. So it's Mm -hmm. not working well at the moment, but I'm trying. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Actually, on the subject of this uh, pandemic, Nepal, what has been the um, effect of this uh, crisis? Has it worsened the kind of family situation or had the opposite effect? Um, what are you going through now? By and large, I'd say things have got worse. Um, but tr- ironically, if it hadn't been for the pandemic and forcing me to spend more time with my children in a home environment, observing them, I think we wouldn't have noticed certain difficulties that they had, um, if that makes sense. So in terms of how it got worse, 
my daughter was receiving um, some in, uh, treatment from a really fantastic eating disorder intensive service. It is one of those examples of how a health service can get it absolutely right. What happened when quarantine started was, as so many services had to, is they had to prioritise what they could do. Face-to-face contact completely went and she was supported through twice-weekly phone calls with a specialist nurse um, across Zoom. Mm-hmm. That found, that was really difficult. So she had a team of about three or four people around her who she could call on at any time if she found things difficult, and that went down to one. A week and a half ago, um, we unfortunately learned that that lady, who was just wonderful and who had been one of us from the beginning and he knows my daughter inside out, um, was moving on to another service. And I think that is quite a, a regular challenge with the NHS system in the UK is that the lack of continuity of care as people mm-hmm. move around. In terms of my son, we have been on the waiting list um, for a psychiatric evaluation for ADHD and for some counselling support for him for over six months. I mean, it has just been so long. And because he is not deemed to be... Um, really serious um we're just still waiting mm-hmm. um and so I think that's it's been much harder on him in a way because he's watching my daughter get all of this help and support and he's going what about me I'm finding life really difficult mm-hmm. we're arguing all the time um uh, you know the, all of the challenges around whether his behavior is bad behavior or whether it's a product of something else which is um still to be diagnosed and explained we're still in a holding pattern However, I said there were some green shoots because um, I've been observing him at home and trying to help him with his school day, trying to help him concentrate enough to get through school. I have noticed his behaviours more. I have been able to look at him and see how difficult he finds it to concentrate, to focus, to organise himself, to follow a task list in um, the order from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. And I've seen his mind jump around all these places. And if it weren't for that, I wouldn't be able to have that conversation with my husband and go, you know what, I actually think there's something more going on here. And that's when we went on to Google and we did the research and we thought maybe it is ADHD. And that has allowed us to escalate through whatever small contacts we have with the cam service and say, look, I think things are getting worse. What what can you do? Can you get us bumped up a list? Can you help us? And we're going through that process at the moment. So I don't I don't know how that's going to pan out. Um, but if if it hadn't been for our ability to just see him close up, I don't think I really would have had got a very complete picture mm-hmm. of the extent of his behavioural difficulties or the, his difficulties full stop. Mm-hmm. up in Soviet Union and there was no mental health you know you were uh, meant to be uh, higher faster stronger meant to be normal so when we were talking earlier about accepting our own awareness of the of the subject I realized that you know it took me 35 years to uh, go to therapy (laughs) do you think sometimes we are almost like too much in our children's head or are we not enough is it important (laughs) to do something with uh, things you notice or just leave them? Oh, there's this brilliant comedy show in the UK called um, Outnumbered. It's quite old now, but it's it's about a, a family with two parents and three children. And in, the, in one of the sort of fraught episodes where they're having a family incident, the husband goes to the wife, are we over-parenting or under-parenting? And the wife goes, I don't know. 
both and at the same time. And um, I, I, I always remember that phrase because that's often how it feels at home. Are we in the heads? Are we out of the heads? Do we want space? Um, you know, every child is different. Every parent is different. And all of our values will will vary across families as well. So um, I go back to the things that have always helped me, which is trust your instincts mm-hmm. um, and try and act on those. And so if it feels that my daughter locking herself in a room for hours on end is not the usual locking herself in the room for hours on end, she's not reading, but she's sitting there being miserable, mm-hmm. um, then that instinct tells me something is up. And And in order to know what to do it all starts with a conversation it all starts with trying to figure out about how they're feeling about life and then that will guide you I don't think there's any preset route that you can take as a parent mm-hmm. um you just have to develop that relationship with your children I'm very fortunate that despite all of our problems the relationship with both my children is close mm-hmm. I want to talk about resilience as well Alex what what are some of the ways that you know we we are building you know, because we, we are all just trying our best, really, as parents. So what are ways to cope with anxiety and uh, stress in a positive way? How to build that resilience? Yeah, I've looked into it. You know, it's kind of my job now, despite being unpaid, because um, maybe I am too much. I don't know if I'm too much in his head. But anyway, he's needed um, all sorts of techniques over the years. I did find this fantastic book called Love Bombing, um, Oliver James. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, when I googled love bombing just before this call to see who it was written by, it turns out that that's what narcissists do to you or something. But anyway, it's an unfortunate title because that is not what the book's about. But love mm-hmm. bombing is about resetting your child's emotional thermometer by putting them in the driving seat for a very special day or a special weekend or a special few hours. Um, where you let them make the decisions, you lead up to an exciting event where you say, right, on Saturday, we're going to do a love bombing day. Anything you want to do within reason, um, wherever you want to go within reason, it's up to you. You're, instead of me saying, get off the computer or we're going here or blah, 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 you're going to be in the driving seat. And I started doing that when he was about seven or eight and he called it fun bombing. And uh, <laughs> oh my God, the difference afterwards, because he'd, in, cause he'd become so stressed by having his days dictated by adults, um, that day kind of freed him up and gave him such self-confidence and self-esteem that he'd made the decisions, he'd created this wonderful day. And usually it was just wander around with the dogs in the park, but and he tells me when we're having an ice cream, etc., etc. And even now, he's 14, he'll say, I want fun bomb. <laughs> um, but resilience, I haven't done the greatest job with resilience, but what I've tried to do is put him in situations where he's doing stuff that he's really good at. So put him into a after school class or with a or into an activity that I know he'll thrive at. So, you know, raises his self-esteem, put him amongst people who care about him. So unlike his cousins have to be nearby, get this nice young man who I mentioned to call him, get them to meet up. Um, Grandma was amazing for that. Just put him amongst people who care about him um, to raise his self-esteem and find a school that is nurturing um, which I now have and it's fantastic Um, uh, organized so that people he likes are coming around even if he thinks it's um, spontaneous it's actually mum you know 
Yeah, I, I, trying to teach him that it's okay to ask for help. It's it's still not a great one that with him, but mm-hmm. and modeling healthy behavior myself, you know, mm-hmm. talking about resilience like I get knocked back for a job and trying to be optimistic and let him see my optimism and let him learn to be optimistic. During the, the crisis now, you've actually started something with uh, your son together, right? Like an art a competition. Yes, we, we started an online art competition for kids and teens um, called Splat Art. Well, he designed it. He thought of it. He designed the website with my help. He designed the logo. Um, yeah, just trying to put him in a position where he's doing stuff that makes him feel good about himself. So, I mean, we did... You know, he got like 50 people entering and uh, we got a Marvel comic illustrator as the first judge. That's great. Yeah. Uh, Nopor, how, how do you um, build resilience with your kids? Resilience is something that I think comes with experience. Mm-hmm. And I was really struck by what you said, Alex, about showing the, your children that you can cope with the vicissitudes of life and with knockbacks and you can remain optimistic. That's something that also resonates with me and that is something I also try and model to my children because uh, to me the definition of resilience is the ability to deal with adversity. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does rely on self-esteem. It does rely on having some inner confidence that knows you can cope even though things are quite bad. And if we take my daughter, she's extremely sensitive to what's going on in the outside world. And I think anyone of her generation would feel that um, it feels quite apocalyptic at the moment. If we're not in the middle of a global pandemic, then there's an environmental crisis to sort out. And if it's not an environmental crisis, there might be an economic crisis to sort out. You know, there are so many things to worry about because um, I'm not convinced our generation has done this fantastic job of... Mm setting the world up to be a great place for them Um, and she's incredibly sensitive to that so I think the knowledge that when having a setback whether it's not getting the um, for an adult not getting a job that you want or um, having a member of your family pass away or just just whatever it is that you can get through it and you can get through it and cope and learn from that and actually develop Um, a better sense of who you are is so important and because of that I tend to talk in quite a mature way increasingly with my my children now that they are growing up about what life is like for us and how we deal with it Mm -hmm. often it's about work um, because that's where we um, experience as challenges more often Um, but always with a sense of calm optimism Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's really important because I want them to grow up and sit around their kitchen table and go what would mum do or what would dad do? And that's the picture I want them to have in their mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a theme of calmness and openness, uh, for sure, that uh, is running um, through all of our um, lives. That's what we're trying to do as um, parents. Alex, you created the cover art for this uh, podcast, which involves um, trapeze acrobats, inspired by the concept of if you fall, I will catch you. What do trapeze acrobats have in common with um, mothers and children's mental health? If you're a mother, I think, that's your main, main um, duty is to be there for them, whatever happens. I mean, it's a demanding job, but anything, any crisis they go through, they have to know that you are 100% in their corner and that you will do whatever it takes to help them through it. And um, yeah, it's a satisfying role, but that's uh, keeping, yeah, it's like, well, not really like a female polar bear because it's, you don't always have to. You don't always have to be savage, but you know, f- catching them when when some crisis happens for them, 
you're there for them, even if it's just a hot chocolate and a cuddle and a movie night. Rec keeping an eye on their keeping an eye on their emotional thermometer and uh, topping it up if it needs it and being there if um yeah if there's a disaster yeah I mean there's so much goes uh, goes on behind the scenes that my son doesn't even know about because I'm thinking all the time about how to uh, you know how to keep him buoyant. Yeah, there's definitely a lot we have to do behind the scenes that nobody sees. There's a lot of emotional involvement. Um, Nupur, you've gone through a very defining experience with your kids and actually going through it, and per your point, it's not something you kind of fix. It's, it's a journey, right? Um, mm -hmm. What advice would you have given yourself before becoming a parent, if you could, in retrospect? I've struggled with this question. I've been reflecting and reflecting on the answer, and I keep coming to the same thing. I wouldn't have done anything differently. Um, and I think as a parent, this, this question of guilt is such a strong, pervasive and destructive emotion. And when you have two children, very different children with very different symptoms and issues, but both going through their own personal nightmares, mm -hmm. it's very easy to turn around and say, what have I done wrong? Mm -hmm. And it took me an enormous amount of self-reflection and I think bravery or courage on my part to just keep going. I don't think I have done the whole thing wrong. Maybe on an individual basis, I shouldn't have yelled at him then and I shouldn't have done this to her then. Sure, we can all do better things there. But I I think I've done the absolute best I can and I don't I don't actually think I'm a bad parent. And that is the pervasive question that mm -hmm. when I when you are said what advice would you give yourself? I sort of morph that in my mind to go, have I been a bad parent? Which I think is indicative of one of the challenges that we face when we know our children are suffering as we kind of internalize that and go, What have, is it our fault? And it's very important, I think, to say, No, do your best. Know that you are um giving them everything that you can, you're looking after them, you're caring for them, you're giving them the security and um, what they need, and that you're trying to guide them with a firm and patient hand through life, and that they will get there. And as long as, you know, I, I feel confident that I am doing that to the best of my ability every day, mm -hmm. I think I'm going to leave it there and give myself a pass. I, I love that. I absolutely just can relate um, to everything you just said, and um, I love your conclusion. Um, Thank you. Any really final thoughts, girls, from both of you? So we've talked about um, mental health. I mean, it's a huge topic, so you can't really mention everything. But is there something just to open up this conversation that you would like to mention? Well, I, I thoroughly agree. And I, I don't give any time to negative emotions anymore. The last seven or eight years, I haven't bothered to think of guilt or to think of what if or I should have done this or that. I think giving yourself an optimistic mindset is the most useful tool you can uh, you can uh, do for your children. Um, I don't regret the past, even though you know plenty of errors. Um, I don't even worry about the future. I just deal with now as best I can, and I'm optimistic. And even if there's a meltdown, even if there's an afternoon where things go crazy. I don't let it bother me for more than that time that it's happening. Afterwards, I'm not lying in bed thinking about it um, in a sad, upset way. It takes some mental training, but I, mm -hmm. yeah, don't waste time with negative emotions. Just, you know, keep going and be as optimistic as possible. 
a really important thing that I, I want my family to follow, my husband, myself and my children, is that it's OK to ask for help. And you mentioned that earlier. Um, but I, I know there's a lot more acceptance these days about mental health difficulties. I know we've just come out in the UK from a Mental Health Awareness Week and I see that in, improving in its uh, reach and how seriously people take it every year. But particularly with teenagers, I feel that we've got an enormous way to go. And I think that's because when you're going through that transition from child to adult, you're extremely sensitive. And you also think you need to be able to do it all by yourself. Mm-hmm. You need to have somehow mastered how the world works and be able to navigate it and be able to find it um, easy and without difficulty. And as a teenager, you often externalise, you look at other people and it seems that they're doing fine as well. Um, but I think... Being able to say, it's not all easy, it's not okay, it's okay for it not to be okay, and can you help me? Can I talk about this with you? Can I just be really upfront about what's going on with me without a sense of shame? It's something that if we can teach our next generations um, to accept and own, then I think they will be emotionally stronger for it. And I think that, you know, that generation will be more able to help each other as well. Mm, it's true. I mean, it, it comes down to empathy a lot a lot of problems that we have in the world right now it is kind of us versus them and that used to be the parenting as well um which um i'm very glad about that that things are shifting it's Mm. not fully equal because i guess it shouldn't be but um it is a lot about just listening and giving them space and really relating to what they're going through i love all those um thoughts it occurred to me that actually what i've found is it's not actually useful to um, view to work with a child's actual age, but instead work with their emotional age. So, like like we said, is getting rid of expectations. Don't expect that because they're fourteen they can deal with this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. Just deal with the emotional age of your child, which, if they're having mental health issues, is often a lot younger than their actual chronological age. That's very true. I kind of didn't Mm -hmm. um, think about it because there's always, oh, you're 13 or you're 12, you know, (laughs) and you're acting like four. I think that's kind of very um, unhealthy behaviours, probably. I think that A from your PACE um, acronym is so true. Acceptance, acceptance of who they are and where they are in their development and of acceptance of who you are and how you're feeling at any given time. It's It's such an enormous key. Um, which is why I was nodding my head. And particularly for me, Alex, when you say accept who they are and where their mental age is, I think that has been so true in our case, particularly with our son, um, because he feels so... He's he's incredibly intelligent. He has um, a, a brain like a laser, and yet from an emotional point of view, he feels very behind. And that disparity has been really mis- misleading. Um, and we were wrong-footing ourselves quite a few times, assuming that because he was so um, intelligent that actually his emotional capabilities were keeping a pace. Um, and we, we we found ourselves in quite a lot of hot water and a lot of arguments, a lot of unhappiness at home because of it. And it's only when we started thinking, where is he at? And what can he deal with? And what can he cope with? And if this is if we're asking too much of him, it's not his fault, it's just where he is emotionally, that we started... Um, things started to settle down a bit sometimes when um as parents we kind of say okay before they go into this big bad world out there we want to prepare them right how do i show them these experiences to toughen them up i think it's very useful for a kid to 
for us to encourage them to take risks, safe risk taking and put them in situations where they might not be completely comfortable, but they may flourish. They may, you know, like sending them on a school trip that involves tromping across the countryside for four days in the rain or whatever. It's not something they're going to really flourish in, but it's going to be something that at the end they will feel like, oh, my God, I did that. I did that. And, you know, Mm -hmm. so it'll increase their resilience. So preparing them for the outside world by putting them in situations where they are taking risks, but in a safe sort of manner. Thank you to Napora and Alex for joining today. Mental health has a stigma of something dark and difficult, but when we start paying attention, approach with calmness, acceptance and empathy, life journeys change. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We'll be back with more episodes. Music